Good morning. I've uh, had a handful of people ask me, so uh, how's Jeff doing? Have you heard from him? And the answer is, I have no idea and no. He's alive and well? Okay. We kind of, when Jeff goes away, uh, this is commanded by Deb, he goes away. And uh, no news is good news. And uh, if uh, something's happening in the life that, of them that they need us to know, he goes through his girls. But he, uh, his last words are usually, hey, unless the building is burning down, I don't want to hear from you. And I'll be back whenever. So uh, I'm sure he's alive and well, fishing and doing all that kind of fun stuff in upstate New York. A um, couple of sermon series ago, we uh, went through the book of Daniel. And that sermon series was called Uncompromising. And the theme that was explored for weeks, I can't remember how many weeks, eight or ten weeks we spent on that. We picked our way slowly through the book of Daniel and we told the stories of him and his bravery and his standing up in the, in the heat of battle and um, <clears throat> you know, bucking the system for God. And, that, and then we got deeper into the book and started exploring similar stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and uh, them standing up and the whole uh, fiery furnace and the lion's den and all of those stories. <clears throat> well, the, the overriding theme was one of faithfulness and bravery and courage uh, under fire, right? So today's lesson is a little bit along those same lines, but I, wanna, I don't want to rehash that, but you'll pick up on that theme immediately with a guy named Mordecai. So this sermon series, we are talking about uh, different por- portraits or personalities in the Bible. These are people who, men and women, who may be a little bit lesser known, maybe you haven't uh, read about forever or quite some time, and we're picking out their personalities, maybe some, something that's, that uh, just sticks with us that they did that was incredible and that we can learn and glean off of. This guy's name is Mordecai. Um, well, this is kind of a sequel a little bit in, in some respects to the whole Daniel story. Because we're going to pick up the story 150 years later, and uh, Mordecai, as you'll hear in the text, Mordecai's great-grandfather was one of the young men that was taken into exile along with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And who knows whether they knew each other, uh, don't know, it's not important, but he was one of those young men that was stolen away from their homeland and taken to Babylon to serve under the the, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so this is a little bit of a sequel, and we're picking up that story. So I want you to to listen in part to some of the similar things that Mordecai exhibits than those those other guys, and you'll pick up some some, uh, common themes there. Um, So that's kind of part A background stuff. Um, This may surprise you, not that uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, this is something I've wanted to do since since uh, my wife Kim and I. Uh, Kim, by the way, is keyboard person. For those who don't know you, we go together. But she and I planted a church in Lebanon about 15-ish years ago, and that church was named Turtle Creek Community Church, and uh, we pastored that for several years. And um, something that I had wanted to do way back then because of something that happened to me even further back, about 20-some years ago. We were coming on staff with Athletes in Action, which is part of Campus Crusade for Christ, and during that support-raising time, which is long and arduous, it just t- takes forever, it seems like, and um, 
somebody, one of the uh, support appointments that I had gone to challenged me to memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, hey, you, you do this and it's going to really serve you well. Plus, it'll give you something to occupy your mind as you're doing this whole support thing. And so I said, well, if, if, if he can do it, I can do it. So I'm going to give it a shot. So Matthew 5, 6 and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. It's about 100. Well, it's 112 verses long. And so I started off. My way was to memorize or pick the, the next two verses each day. Say those over and over and over and over again throughout the day. Add those and go on a walk and t- you know, out loud, say what I had learned up till that point. And um, by the time I memorized the Sermon on the Mount, it took about seven and a half to eight minutes to verbalize that. That was really, really a cool experience. And that enabled that head knowledge of the book to become heart knowledge. And I can tell story upon story uh, at some point about the value of doing that for me. Okay, because it was, it was just a really cool experience. Well, I got done with that and I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty fun. I'm going to go back to chapter one and fill in the the space up to chapter five and just you know just for kicks just to see how far i get so i did that by that time it took about 20 minutes to verbalize word for word um just without reading you know just spewing it out okay so then i was like wow i just wonder how far i could get and this is not a story this is not a hey kevin you're incredible this is this was just a story of perseverance over two long years of just picking away, picking away and picking away. Well, unbeknownst to me, the last four chapters of Matthew are as long as the previous 10 or 12. They're just like they just really stretch out when it gets there toward the end of the book. And uh, so I got up to the middle of chapter 26. There's 28 chapters in Matthew. Got up to the middle of chapter 26. By this time, my goal was I just wonder if I could just recite the book of the whole book of Matthew to somebody. I don't care who it is. And uh, well, by that time, it, it took about two hours and 15 minutes to verbalize that. Well, the whole point of that is that, that the whole point of that is that that experience really uh, kind of an un, unpredicted uh, result of that for me was that that scripture, that big chunk of scripture came alive to me. I'm a reader. I like to read novels and adventure stories and James Bondish kind of stuff and and I, I just enjoy that. And so the Bible kind of took on that for me for the very first time. I was like, hey, dude, this is like a cool story. And it flows and it's it's that it has stuff in it. And it's really cool. And uh but we as Christians, those of you who've been around the church for a while Certainly those of you who are fairly new to the church, we hardly ever get to that point where we hear or read or listen to big chunks of Scripture. We hear a sermon. Uh, Sometimes we'll pick like a few verses or a little chunk and we'll add on to that each week. Sometimes it's a topical thing. We're talking about this topic or that topic and the pastor will pick verses from here and there to support the idea of what we're talking about. But very, very seldom do we hear the Bible, and have it come alive. The story of Mordecai is laid out in the book of Esther. And Esther, of course, is, is one of the key uh, principles in this story. But Mordecai, uh, as you'll find out, is her adopted father. And um, as I was reading through this, preparing for this, Jeff said, okay, you need to talk about Mordecai. I'm like, okay, we'll talk about Mordecai. But as I was reading through, I was like, well, that kind of 
for me at least, that, that kind of is the same themes as, as Daniel. And so what do I want to, let's do something a little bit different here. So we are going to do something different. I am going to read the book of Esther to you. And as I was reading this, um, it just, again, it just kind of came alive. And I was thinking, if I did not know anything about the Bible, let's say I'd never read the Bible, Bible before, and I was just read this story um, as a story. It has all of the cool stuff in it. It has the international espionage kind of feel to it. It has intrigue, and it has uh, secrets, and all of this kind of stuff. It's a very cool story. And uh, this is going to take about 25 minutes or so. And so I want you, if you, if it will help you to close your eyes and just concentrate so you're not distracted by stuff that's going on, please do so without falling asleep, okay? Uh, if you want to just look down at your lap so that you're not distracted, if you want to, whatever you need to do to zone out so that you can just listen, have God tell you a story, um, whatever you need to do, okay? Deal? Then I'm going to uh, afterward pick out a couple of things that, I, that kind of popped out to me in the, in the story. Here we go. <clears throat> this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At the time of King Xerxes, he reigned in his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were all present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting for seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all of the people from the least to the greatest who were part of the city of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king's instructed the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of the king. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. The king became furious and he burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times, the seven nobles of Persia and Midia who had special access to the king and that were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She's not obeyed the command of the king that the eunuchs have taken to her. When Memucan, one of the nobles, replied to the presence, uh, in the presence of the king of, and the nobles, he said, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all of the nobles and the peoples of the provinces of the king. For, for the queen's conduct will become known to all of the women, so they will despise their husbands. 
And they will all say, well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she would not come. This very day, the Persian and the Midian women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to their, the king's nobles in the same way and there will be no end to disrespect and discord in your kingdom. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Midia, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never to enter the presence of the king again. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all of his vast realm, all of the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, and so the king did as Memekin had proposed. He sent dispatches to all of the parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each of the people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own household in his native tongue. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made of all of the young, beautiful women for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all of these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young, women, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and so he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, among those taken captive when Joachim, the king of Judah, had been taken captive. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither a father nor a mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when his father and his mother had died, or her father and mother had died. When the king's order and the edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the city of Susa and under the care of Haggai, who was the king's eunuch. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge over them. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and with special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her to and her attendants to the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was doing and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into the king, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and cosmetics. This is how she would go into the king. Anything that she wanted to be to, was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and had summoned her by name. When the term came for, a turn came from Esther to go into the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of them, had suggested, and Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. 
She was taken to the king in the royal residence in the t- 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the others. So he set a royal crown on her head and he made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the women were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officials who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate the king. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All of this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, one of his officials, elevating him and giving him a seat higher than any of the other nobles. All of the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. Remind you of Daniel and his friends? Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they asked Haman about about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down and pay honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of King Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, in the first month, the month of Nisan, lots were cast in the presence of Haman to select the day and the month, and a lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed among the people in all of your provinces and your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all of the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the interests of the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I'll give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, and he gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, governors, and the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a certain day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder all of their goods. 
A copy of the text of the edicts was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people in every nationality so that they will be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's commands, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was, in, was bewildered. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one, was, no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province in which the edict was ordered, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hafek, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered by him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hafek went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which was, had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back out and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All of the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or any woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they will be put to death unless the king extends his gold scepter to them and spares their lives. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent his, her reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susan and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast with you. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put her royal robes on and stood in the inner court, inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, and he held out his gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, Come to today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may go and do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king asked again to Esther, Now, what's your petition? It will be given to you. And what's your request? Even up to half of the kingdom it will be granted. 
Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to another banquet that I will prepare for them and then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose or showed, rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nonetheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways that the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all of the nobles and the officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching the height of 50 cubits. That's about 75 feet. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and so he had that pole set up outside his house. That night the king could not sleep, and so he ordered the book of Chronicles that recorded his reign to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigtana and Teresh, the two officers who had guarded the doorway and who conspired against the king to assassinate him, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing's been done for him, his attendants answered. So the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole that he had set up for him. His attendants answered, well, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king answered. When Haman entered entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let him robe the man that the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets proclaiming before him this is what's done for the man who the king delights to honor go at once the king commanded Haman get that robe get that horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate do not neglect anything that you have recommended so Haman got the robe got the horse robed Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what's done for the man who the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife said to him, since Mordecai said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand with him or you surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had provided. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. As they were there drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Esther, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What's your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be granted. 
Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in, with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no distress would be justified disturbing the king. But King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching the height of 50 cubits stands right by Haman's house. And he led, and he had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the very pole that he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he had re- what was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and he presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, which, had, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended his gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman had devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all of the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? The king replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the very pole that he had set up. Now write another decree in the king's name on the behalf of the Jews, as it seems best to you, and seal it with my ring. For no document rented, uh, written in my name and sealed with my ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the, uh, to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and of the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and their own language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with his signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast on horses especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them, and to kill their women and their children and to plunder their property. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in the provinces 
was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves and their enemies. The couriers, riding on the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the city of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white and a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king had came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because they had feared what happened. What an awesome story. That's an incredible story. Um, you know, God's Word is, is rich and, um, and just fascinating when you read it as a big chunk. And it's, it has a different feel, doesn't it, than when you pick verses from here and there. And I, I think every once in a while we should do that. Just let the Bible preach itself. Um, I just think that's really cool. Well, as I was reading through that uh, several times this week, trying to think of some things that just kind of popped out to me, a couple of things popped out uh, to me. Um, And we're talking about Mordecai, and the book is named after Esther. And really the relationship between Mordecai, who he was, she wasn't even his daughter. It was an adoptive situation. But she grew up learning from him. And she grew up having him speak into her life. And history was changed because of that. Um, There is a universal question that every boy has of his father. And there's a universal question that every daughter has of her father. The boy's question is this. Do I have what it takes? And whether that boy, you know, if, if you're a man, think back to your childhood. If you are a father, think of your male child. Do I have what it takes? Whether that boy says that verbally in those words or not, really what that boy needs to know from their father is, I, am I a man? Do I have what it takes to be like you, to be great? Okay, we'll talk about that maybe some other time. But every girl... Universally, it doesn't matter what country, what origin, what culture, every girl has a universal question, and that is, Am I beautiful? And every girl needs to hear from her father, Yes, you are beautiful. And we're not talking physical beauty. That may or may not be, it doesn't matter. Okay? We're talking inner beauty. Every daughter needs to hear from her father, You are beautiful. You have a beautiful mind. You have a beautiful spirit. You have a beautiful countenance. If a girl does not hear that from her father, she has to seek that answer from somewhere else. And as that girl grows older into young adulthood, she has to seek that and get that from somebody else, which we as fathers, we don't want that to happen. I want to give my daughter that message so I'm going to encourage you. I, I, I was just reading into this relationship of Mordecai and Esther. And you could tell by the, the bravery and the courage that she exhibited later on in life that he had told her that. He had answered that question 
with in no uncertain terms. She grew up knowing, knowing that she was beautiful, that she was bold, that she was brave. Um, our daughter, Whitney, uh, have you ever heard uh, Jeff, every once in a while, Jeff will say, hey, uh, he'll use Josh as an example in a sermon. He says he made a deal early on with Josh that every time he uh, uses Josh's name, he owes him 10 bucks. And uh, I was telling Jeff, I said, hey, I, did, I made no such deal with my kids. I was a pastor's kid, so I bore the brunt. And so my kids, I told them early on, hey, every chance I get to embarrass you, I'm going to go for it. All right. So it's just payback. Right. So but anyway, our, our daughter, Whitney, <clears throat> uh, not only am I encourage you as dads, and I'm going to speak to you dads with possible daughters. Not only do you need to answer that question for your daughter, but you need to teach her some really cool stuff. Teach her something that's unique to your family culture uh, that's going to separate her from the, the rest. Uh, Whitney was, has, was into horses when we were growing up. So we always had horses on our property. Uh, she was into 4-H and doing the barrel racing thing and all that through, through growing up. And uh, so when she turned 15 and a half, whenever that age is, that you can go get your temp license, okay, I saw I saw you driving the other day on a on a Facebook video. And uh, so when 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 you turn 15 and a half, you know, you have to you get your temps and you have to do so many hours, 50 hours of practice or whatever. I said, okay, the first thing you need to learn is how to hook up that horse trailer and back that horse trailer around the back of the barn. Okay, because I want you to grow up to be the young woman who can back the trailer. Okay, and she took to that and it, it set her apart. I mean, I, I, I witnessed some of these instances and I heard about more from young men in the 4-H world. They were like, yeah, I was trying to hook up this trailer to load my horse and I was getting it all crooked. And then Whitney came over and said, step aside, young boy, let me handle it. All right. And to this day, she's gotten more mileage out of that. And it was just some simple thing that, that set her apart and honored her to say, you are special. Um, my mom was this was evil at the time my mom was my fourth grade teacher and uh this was back in the early 70s when the whole um like uh, self-esteem movement was and you know you're all peace and love and all this kind of stuff well i could she tells me now i didn't know it at the time but she tells me now that the whole school system was going through this build self-esteem thing into the, the people. I can remember her over and over and over again telling me, hey, if so-and-so can do it, so can you. And I have received so much mileage out of that growing up and into my adulthood. Hey, if those 10 people can do that, so can I, right? And I feel like that was happening with, with Mordecai and Esther, that as she was growing up, he was saying, hey, Esther, if those people can do it, so can you. You are beautiful, you are strong, you are brave, and I'm going to teach you this so that when the time comes, and that's my second point, verse four, or chapter 4, verse 14, such a time as this. He told her, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the king, and I want you to give him this message. Well, she knew good and well that that might be a death sentence because as you heard in the story, you don't just march into the king and demand stuff. If you do that and he doesn't extend the gold scepter to you, that's a death sentence. But her dad was telling her to do this. I want you to go to the king. Who knows that your position now has been 
set aside or set forth for such a time as this is what he was telling her was, hey, it could be that your whole life up to this point is leading up to this point. There's a goes back, uh, I don't know, several years anyway, people were asking me, it seemed like three or four people just in the course of a short time asked me how to define faith. And these were unrelated people and, and asking different questions, but it, it all kind of boiled down with, I, I, I hear this thing called faith, I don't really understand what it is. And so I, uh, I went about deciding or, or trying to determine kind of a workman's uh, a working definition of the concept of faith. Here's what I came up with, and you're free to use this, okay? Faith is the ability to look forward to the hindsight. All right? Think about what that means. Hindsight is 2020, right? I can look back in time and I can see how things played out because I'm, it's already happened and I'm looking back at it, all right? When I'm in the heat of battle, I'm scared, I'm confused, I don't know what's going on. But faith, if I have faith, that gives me the ability to look forward to such a time that I can look back and say, oh, so that's what you were doing, God. I can still be confused, I can still be scared, but faith gives me the ability to look forward to the time that I can look back. And so Mordecai was telling Esther, hey, you operate your life correctly with honor, with virtuosity, with respect, with faithfulness, with gumption. And then when the time comes, you're going to know and you're going to be able to do it because you're brave. So I told, I told our kids, I want to tell you, now is the time to decide that in the future, when such a time comes, you'll be able to answer yes. Because if you wait until that time, typically the answer is no, because it's too scary. But if you decide right now, today, at such a time as this, I'm going to be able to answer yes, then it's way, way easier, Right? And that's the lesson that Mordecai had built into Esther. And that's, you know, who knows? He was telling her, you know, when you look back in hindsight to that, the fact that she was brave, the fact that she could stand up, the fact that he had modeled to her that you could stand up, saved the lives of thousands of people. They were months away from the armies of King Xerxes going in there and just annihilating all of them. Men, women, children, didn't matter. But because she had the gumption, because she had the bravery to stand up, she saved thousands of lives. And it was because Mordecai had built that into his daughter, his adopted daughter. All right? So the next time you look at your kid, if he's a boy, answer that question. Little Johnny, you have what it takes, man. You're, the, you're like the little man. I can see it in your eyes. You're a little man. And if you have a daughter, look into her eyes and say, you are beautiful. You're beautiful on the inside. And God is going to use you at some point to do something incredible. And I want you to be ready for when that time comes. And for Whit, like Whitney backing up the trailer, I want her to be ready so that when that time comes, she can say, step aside, boys. I'm going to take care of it. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to hear an incredible story, to hear your words played out on kind of a movie screen of our imagination.
And uh, Lord, that, that's just one of hundreds and hundreds. Um, I just pray that uh, you give us the, um, the creativity, the energy, the endurance or whatever we need to, um, to take advantage of the lessons that you give us so that such a time as whenever that is, that we'll be able to have the bravery to stand up and to, to be counted as one of yours. Uh, we thank you. We love you. We honor you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Have an awesome Sunday.